broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Investor Exchange. I'll be your host today in Steph's absence. Uh, So I'm your host, Louis Van Copenhagen, and joining me in the virtual studio is, as always, Joel Hewish and Brett Dickinson. Morning, Louis. Morning, listeners. How are we doing? Morning, guys. Good Good to see you all again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And how have you guys been running the last week? Pretty good, to be honest with you. Um, I feel like I've uh, had a chance to knock off a few few tasks that have been just hanging over my head. So uh, always feels good when you get get rid of a few of those lingering lingering projects that you just haven't been able to get around to. And uh, got one eye now on the Queensland borders opening up. Yeah, bring it on. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yep. And today is actually, uh, if all things being equal and uh, we continue the trend of the last 27 days, we will reach that magical 28 days of no new coronavirus cases in Victoria and no new coronavirus deaths. Uh, so that was the gold standard, I believe, for uh, what was considered to be uh, practically COVID normal That's under right. the original roadmap. Well, they're calling it Elimination Day. It could uh, yeah. be, could be elimination day. Now, now having said that, I've probably just mozzed us and stuffed it all up for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, Joe. Uh, it's your fault. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, yeah. it's not, not my fault. Up. If if we don't get there, it's not my fault. Okay. <laughs> I know nothing. Oh jeez. We'll remember this moment if we don't. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it seems like now as a, as a nation, we're, we're very much on, on top of things. And uh, with the, the borders starting to open up, um, uh, South Australia just needs a bit of time to, um, to have a bit of distance from their last outbreak. Um, and the borders will open up to them as well for, for, for Queensland. Um, and, and I think that would be sort of the last of it. Um, WA's decision to continue to hold its border um, mostly shut, but somewhat open under some kind of permitting system. Um, I, I wonder how much longer that would last for if all of the other states have um, have, have effectively eliminated all of the community transmission. Mm. Yes. Yeah, sort of. Uh, I, there, there'll probably be some form of increasing public pressure to, uh, to fall in line. It sort of almost makes no sense now uh, if we're if we're heading in the direction that we are, that uh, WA still continues to keep their borders closed. I know Mark McGowan is really, you know, pushing this as much as he can for political uh, benefit, but at the end of the day, it, it could actually start to work against him if he uh, if he holds that line for too long. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's always that balancing act. Mm. Well, yeah. they'll certainly miss tourism because everyone will head elsewhere where they can. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, being from Perth myself, um, there's always um, 
uh, always a desire to get out of Perth and, and visit the, the so-called eastern states, head over east. Um, particularly Melbourne's a beneficiary of that, I think, because um, people from Perth, um, they're not interested in going to other places for their beaches and their good weather. Um, they're interested more in the, um, the the culture and tourism side of things, which tends to be a bit more of um, Melbourne than other places. The, the cosmopolitan feel, hey, the European right. cosmopolitan feel. In fact, I have noticed a number of the bigger hotel chains have started to open up this week as well. So uh, the Grand Hyatt, that's uh, now reopened. Um, and uh, I, I can see that the W across the road look like they're getting prepared to open back up as well uh, or open up for the first time. Uh, that's that's a building that never actually got uh, got underway. Um, huh. So, be, yeah, so I think we can start to see the trend is uh, is back towards a, a, a normal or a normalisation, which is encouraging and it's great and it's great to see. And I've got to say one thing about uh, the, the I'll, I'll, I'll give the state government a wrap. I've been a bit of a critic on the state government over the last seven months or so, but I'll give the state government a bit of a pat on the back and also the Melbourne City Council. I love the outdoor dining uh, and the alfresco dining that they've introduced. It just brings another level of vibrancy to the city that perhaps if you were, you know, just a bypasser, you know, walking down the street, you wouldn't actually see how much activity is going on. But it just really brings, makes the city feel alive. And it's, uh, it's really, uh, I hope, um, that it, it ends up being the success that they uh, are expecting and uh, or hoping for, and that this becomes something that might be more of a regular fixture during the summer months of um, of, of Melbourne summers. That would be a lovely byproduct, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm noticing some uh, different reactions from different people uh, around Melbourne and Victoria having come out of this now. Um, Obviously, everyone's got a sense of relief, and I'm just looking at different people's reactions and 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 how they're um uh, how they're coping in in the last couple of weeks. A number of people have, or everyone's obviously relieved. Some people have really uh, used this extra energy to go out and travel, and they're coming back refreshed. Other people are doing that, but they're actually I'm, I'm finding some people are going a bit too hard. And, uh, and and their bodies are actually starting to, to break down and uh, they're needing to take bits of leave. And uh, I, I had a, a day off yesterday where I just needed to rest my body. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if you guys have got a sense of that as well. You know, um, the funny thing is, Louis, I, I tend to find that when I get to uh, Christmas time for about the first three or four days of uh, going on holidays, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I sleep in until God knows what time. It's like my body just, it, it's almost like you're, you're pushing so hard and you're just pushing to get to the finish line. Yeah. And, and then as soon as you take that pressure off, your yep. body goes, all right, I'm taking over from here. And yeah. Uh, time to rest. Yep. Yeah. 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 And, and different people have uh, the, the, the same concept, but a different reaction. I know some people that actually get sick. Um, yeah. If they take a holiday, um, they'll actually spend the first four or five days with a cold. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, a waste of a holiday. <laughs> it is, but that's just their um, that's their body's reaction to, uh, uh, to to not being in that sort of um, stress state and switching from stress stress to relaxation um, means that 
um, that their body actually is is detoxing and um, getting getting whatever it is out. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting to see that happening now um, uh, yep. that we're uh, coming out of lockdown for for a few weeks. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, look, let's get into our podcast proper. Um, and uh, Joel, I believe that there was uh, some some news that you wanted to go through. Yeah, we've got uh, the Australian Financial Review around this time of the year starts to publish some of its wealthiest Australian lists or the uh, AFR 200 rich list and also the Australia's youngest uh, rich people uh, list or the Australia's rich youngest people list. Um, Which coming, Joel? What number? <laughs> no, uh, this this always, you know, this is a very humbling experience this time of the year. <laughs> it lets you know just how insignificant you really are in, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> but it, it's always a fascinating time. I, I, I enjoy looking through the lists and just seeing exactly who made their wealth, what states have got the, the most amount of wealth, uh, where all the money is being made, what industries. Um, and if we if we start with the Australia's uh, top 200 rich listers, uh, this year Gina Reinhart has uh, gone back to number one on the rich list. Uh, first time back at number one since 2015. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we had uh, Anthony Pratt, who uh, tended to to hold that, those um, uh, the the top rich listing uh, position for the 2017, 18 and 19 years. Um, not a bad year for Gina. Uh, her wealth has jumped by 109% over the past 12 months uh, to $29 billion. So a uh, pretty handy year for, for her. Um, Andrew Forrest, uh, and it looks like, you know, with, with the recovery in the resources sector and, and in fact, commodity prices doing quite well, uh, we've now got Andrew Forrest, who's coming in at number two at $23 billion. Uh, uh, we have Anthony Pratt, who was previously uh, sitting at the uh, number one uh, position for 17, 18, 19. He's now at number three at $19.75 billion. Pretty tough for Anthony Pratt, uh, considering that his, his, uh, his business primarily grew by around about 27% over the last 12 months and still was knocked off the perch. Wow. Uh, I, I don't know too many people who wouldn't be happy with 27% growth and and, uh, and yet still, yeah, and, and still you're, uh, you know, you're, you're just coming in with the bronze. Um, you've got uh, property magnate uh, Hue Wing Mao, who is a Hong Kong property developer, Australian uh, citizen, but uh, based over overseas. He's worth $18.06 billion. The two technology guys from Atlassian, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, comes in at number five at $16.93 billion. And then Scott Farquhar, his partner in crime, at number six at $16.69 billion. Uh, Harry Triggerboff, the Meriton, uh, Meriton property uh, business owner who owns all of those ugly apartment buildings in uh, Sydney, um, at $14.42 billion. Uh, Clive Palmer, also in the resources sector, uh, comes in at uh, number eight at nine point one eight billion. Frank Lowy had to buy a politician seat. Mm. Yeah, well, it can't can't buy many votes though, can it? Oh. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, Frank Lowy, the uh, Westfield property uh, magnate, um, 
formerly Westfield property magnate. Uh, the family sold out of Westfield a number of years ago now, uh, worth $8.3 billion. Kerry Stokes rounds out the top 10 at uh, at $6.26 billion. Kerry Stokes, obviously the seven, uh, seven news Thanks. network owner, uh, but also has interest in property and resources as well. So um, overall, um, Australia now has 104 billionaires. Uh, now, I, I remember looking back around the time when Kerry Packer was on top of the charts, probably back in 2005, 2006. And at that stage, I think we had just six billionaires. So uh, things have certainly changed in Australia for the wealthiest uh, top several uh, hundred um, uh, Australian rich listers. Uh, combined, the rich list is worth a uh, a total of $424 billion. Wow. Um, and that is up from $341.8 billion in 2019. So very, it, albeit we've had a COVID interrupted year, that is, uh, what is that? That would be close to about a 20% uh, increase in uh, wealth for, for many of these people. Yeah. Sorry, Joel, uh, that's across the top how many people? That's the top 200. So the whole two, the whole whole wealth of the 200 rich list is 424 billion, uh, up from 341.8 billion in 2019. Their average wealth is 2.12 billion dollars, uh, and so uh, and the cutoff this year you have to be you had to be worth at least 540 million dollars to make the list. So more than half a billion dollars in order to make the list this year. That was up from 472 million the previous year. So it looks uh, based on the cutoff and also based on the average uh, and the total wealth that it's been a pretty good year for the rich listers, probably somewhere around about a 15 to 20% growth in uh, in net worth across the board on average. The main sources of wealth for all you budding property investors, property uh, makes up the greatest sum of wealth uh, at $81.56 billion. Resources comes in at number two with $61.56 billion of those people sitting on the 200 rich list. Technology came in at third, and I would not be surprised that in the years to come whether uh, that technology actually overtakes those first two. Uh, technology at $54.67 billion. I also recall around about 10 years ago, the Australian stock market barely had a technology sector. Um, so, uh, and, and in fact, we weren't very well known at technology outside of uh, perhaps the odd financial uh, technology business, um, fintech business. So technology is making a real uh, fast track up the, uh, up the ladder in terms of its influence in Australian wealth creation. Uh, retail comes in in number four at 36.56 million, uh, billion, sorry. Uh, technology and retail, obviously, this year were very much beneficiaries of the COVID era, and most of those retailers are online retailers. Um, many of the wealth, uh, m much of the wealth that is being created in the retail sector is coming from online applications and various e-commerce platforms. And then uh, we have uh, manufacturing at 32.8 billion at number five, resources and ag agriculture. So this, this is more around agricultural resources. Uh, 28.9 billion. Financial services 
surprisingly not having the influence that uh, it once had. Um, slipping all the way down to, what do we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seventh on the table. Uh, 17.19 billion. Uh, investments, uh, 9.83 billion. And media at 9.54. And agriculture at 8.83 billion. Of the... Uh, of the uh, of all of the rich listers, the average age has gone down from really? what was uh, 67 last year down to 66. Oh, uh, so, <laughs> so not a huge not a huge uh, not a huge move downwards. So it still 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 gives us hope, boys. We're we're in with a chance. We've got another yeah. uh, 26 27 years ahead of us. Um, uh, before we uh, before we sort of become a little bit of a laggard and uh, and then in New South Wales New South Wales leads the way with the most uh, rich listers uh, with 69 Victoria comes in at second at 59 Queensland at third at 23 and WA at uh, at fourth at 21 um, in fact uh, we actually have uh, uh, overseas residents um, uh, at 24 so it would be New South Wales, Victoria, and then overseas residents that make up the uh, the, the greatest number of uh, rich listers on the rich list this year. Uh, and women, uh, women have jo uh, are starting to uh, increase in numbers, albeit from a very low base. Uh, 25 last year in 2019 to be 30 this year that that are represented on the AFR 200 rich list for 2020. So um, fascinating stats. Uh, I, you know, it's uh, just curious to see how how uh, money is being made and who's making the money. And uh, always, you know, if you're if you're still starting off and you you still got a good, you know, ten or or twenty years ahead of you, don't despair. There's the average age of the rich listers here are 66 years of age, so there's still time for all of us. <laughs> there you go. But what are you saying for someone who's 65? Ah, uh, you're stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got one year. That's right. You've got one year. Hurry up. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe just go and find a, a big, uh, big deposit of iron ore somewhere, and that can uh, give you a little bit of a, a help along. 109%. Not a bad outcome for Gina. She's got to be pretty happy with that. Yeah, that's amazing. Shooting up. Wow. Wow. Well, she never got that. Uh, she not, never got that stake in Fairfax, so it's obviously not the not the media side of things that's helping her along. No, and uh, and and look at where um, uh, someone like uh, a family like the Packer family has gone. And you know, James Packer used to be in that uh, top ten uh, list, and he's gone. Yeah, no, he's he's uh, well down on the list these days. Yeah, he would have been um, around number three, number four at some point in time. But uh, yep. yeah, no, he certainly slid down. Mm -hmm. um, they the AFR has also uh, produced its uh, rich uh, its financial review young rich list. Uh, so these are Australians under the age of forty. Um, and uh, just interesting to note that uh, we now have our youngest ever billionaire uh, in Australia to join the list. Uh, that is Nick Molnar, age 30. And wow. he's not only a billionaire, but he's a billionaire twice over. He yeah. is the founder of the Buy Now, Pay Later platform, Afterpay. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, once again, fintech technology, I, I just, that's where all the innovation is coming from right now. Um, 
everything that you do these days has something to do with technology. I mean, we're a financial services business, but everything that we do is run through various uh, trading platforms, software platforms, practice management platforms, accounting platforms. Um, you know, it, you know, even traditional businesses need to to run on technology and technology-based platforms, and the opportunity to innovate and make things more efficient. Uh, no wonder it's where you know many of the the newly minted uh, rich listers are uh, are coming from. So, my prediction is that in ten years' time, uh, technology will actually be the leader in Australia for uh, the uh, Australia's richest people. Uh, it will no longer be uh, the traditional um, areas of uh, resources and, what do we say? It was resources and uh, property. On, yeah, real estate. Mm, that's right. Do you think that's going to follow like the US trend with the likes of Google and Apple being such juggernauts? I don't I, look. I'm not too sure whether or not we're going to have uh, our own version of a Google or Apple, but I, I certainly think that um, where Australia has been quite adept has been finding these niche opportunities that um, that perhaps you know others overseas have overlooked or not identified, and um, some of the opportunities are, are huge. I mean, you only have to have a look at Atlassian. Yeah. Atlassian. Uh, you know, have grown over the last 15 years into an absolute powerhouse in uh, in, a, in in digital platforms that help software developers collaborate and and develop software. Um, you know, from from remote areas. So, um, is Amazon a technology or a retail company, or is it both? Well, it's it's not it, so it's actually listed as a as a retail company uh, on the exchanges. It's not actually considered a technology business. So tr traditional technology is is generally uh, considered software development uh, or platform application development. Um, uh, yeah, and and then you know e-commerce sits under the retail and consumer discretionary uh, industries and sectors. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting when you look at a company like Atlassian, um, the market cap of Atlassian, I'm just looking at some stats, is uh, $53 billion, which would be US dollars, uh, mm. which uh, which would make it uh, around about sort of uh, 70 uh, billion Australian dollars, uh, which would put it, uh, if it were listed on the Australian stock market, that would put it at uh, about number six. Uh, pretty close to number five, and and sort of at the the bottom or middle range of the big four banks. Um, yeah, right. So so not as big as BHP, which is uh, at the moment 115 billion dollars. Right. Uh, not as big as CBA, the biggest bank, which is 143 billion, uh, and number one on the list. Not as big as CSL, which is number two on the list at 139 billion dollars. Right. And, uh, and CSL is one of those uh, examples of, of technology as well, um, but in that biotech space. Yes, indeed. And, and I think what's happening, I think the in, in the old world, if you're going to start a new company that really changes the game of the world, like if you're going to start a new mining company or start a, a media company uh, or, or start a, a, a healthcare company like CSL, it's going to take you decades to build it and build it and have it flourish. Mm. And technology just changes that game. Yeah. 
the, the barriers to disruption and and shifting the whole world are so much lower. And, yeah. and that's why I think you're right, Joel, with technology uh, going to come in and, and dominate this list in future uh, and see this list get a lot younger as well. Yes, yes, indeed. I 100% agree with you there, Louis. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, but one thing's for sure, all of these people had their own business. Yes, they did. Correct. So probably the, the biggest uh, determination is people who are uh, of that entrepreneurial mindset. And from that, I guess, I wonder for, for all these people who are successful, uh, how many people are not so successful? How many have tried and and not made it to that billion dollar mark? And how many have tried and still made it a really long way? Uh, yes, it's not like correct. billion dollars is is not necessarily your your measure of success. Uh, there's plenty of small business owners that have created a, a really good life for themselves uh, in terms of uh, a level of wealth they're happy with, or um or, or even just a lifestyle that they're happy with. Yeah, correct, correct. Mm, yep. Uh, look, very interesting. Uh, is there more to it than that, Joel? No, that pretty much sums it up, Louis. Uh, just thought it would be a nice, interesting round off as we close in on the end of 2020 to sort of mark yourself in terms of where you are in life and how miserable your performance has been. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of course not. Success is not measured just in dollars. Oh, he says, wiping a tear from his eye. <laughs> all right we'll take a short break we'll be back want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund each day clients of united global capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich book your seat at ugc's financial fast track seminars where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. And welcome back. Um, I might uh, I might take a lead from that uh, because what I wanted to talk about today was uh, one of the strategies uh, that is used by high net worth individuals uh, in their investment plans. And it's actually more of a tax strategy and a structuring strategy than anything else. Because uh, I get this question from the time to time, uh, should I have a family trust for my investments? Yes. And, and becoming more significant these days, Louis, given the uh, introduction of the um, of the uh, of the caps within superannuation and how much people can hold within super and still attract the the uh, zero tax uh, rate. Absolutely, and there's been a few things, a few moving parts over the last couple of decades, really. Uh, which has made trusts a bit more attractive. One is, as you said, Joel, um, a, a restriction on how much money can be put into super. Um, I remember when Peter Costello first brought in some restrictions uh, on the annual limits that you could put into super. And prior to that, um, you could put in, you could move 
um, I think at the time it was something like $1.1 million per person uh, into superannuation. Uh, you could just say, okay, I've got this money outside of super. Um, I don't want to be paying tax on the income that's earned from from that money anymore. Uh, and then just boom, move it into super, tax problem's gone. Yeah, correct. That that all happened around 2007, just before the GFC. <laughs> yeah, correct. That's right. That's right. It was the same time that he created the endowment funds to take care of the um, uh, the public sector's uh, retirement problem with all the public servants having a defined benefit scheme uh, and that scheme actually not being properly funded, uh, which that's right, the, the future funds, um, which uh, which then the, 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 the public floating of Telstra with T1 and T2 and T3 uh, coming into that. Anyway, that's going back. So you've, you, you've got those restrictions, which have meant that people are looking for uh, a, a, another um, low tax environment for their funds. And there's been another moving part, which was when the carbon tax came into Australia, um, uh, part of the measures to offset the impact of the carbon tax was a changing in the in the tax rates and the tax thresholds. And prior to the carbon tax, the the amount of income a person could earn without paying tax uh, personally was uh, $5,200. I think it had just gone up to $6,000 as a tax-free threshold. That tax-free threshold was raised to what is now $18,200 that a person can earn without paying any tax. So why are trusts helpful? Trusts are helpful because they let you hold an asset and they let you nominate who are the beneficiaries of that trust and taxable income and the capital gains can be distributed to one of a number of beneficiaries. And you can choose how that's distributed each year. So let's take a typical family situation of a, a husband and a wife and two children, just your, um, your, your standard average Australian family. Uh, they've got 2.3 children, Louis. Sorry, 2.3 <laughs> children. You're right, Brett, 2.3 children. Uh, and let's make sure we get uh, 0.3 of another tax-free threshold in there. Um, uh, if they, if this family starts to accumulate assets, uh, they they start doing well for themselves. They maximise their superannuation contribution, and they're accumulating investments outside of super as well. Uh, if these investments are in the name of the husband or the wife then the income that those investments produces gets added to their income from their employment or, or whatever other taxable income that they've got, which means that often they've got a, a marginal tax rate, which is 30 something or 40 something percent. Um, and over the years that's shifted as all the tax rates have, have shifted. Um, and there is often one partner with a higher income than the other partner. So you might have a difference between those tax rates. Partner one might have a, a marginal tax rate of 40 something percent. Partner two might have a tax rate of 30 something percent. And if you have the investments in the name of one of those people or in joint names, then you're effectively locking in who is going to receive the taxable income from that investment over the life of the investment. Whereas what a trust allows you to do, if you set up a trust 
and the beneficiaries of the trust are partner one and partner two, then the trust owns the asset. The income that comes from the asset can be distributed to either partner one or partner two in any given tax year. Uh, let's take an example where um, in, in one year, uh, partner one has higher income than partner two. Um, therefore, the income of the trust is going to get distributed to partner two, who's on a lower taxable uh, income for that year. In the following year, maybe partner one had a bit of time between their employments. And because they're a higher income earner, they might have been willing to have a longer gap. Maybe they were off work for four or five months when they were looking for the, the, the right next job to go to, which means their taxable income for that year was actually lower than partner two. Well, the trust gets to choose, um, well, it's a new tax year. Who am I going to distribute this income to in this year? Well, I'm going to switch it to partner one, or I'm going to do it in portions or stages. So why are trusts helpful? They allow you to split income in, uh, in that way that you nominate between different beneficiaries. Now, if you've got children in the mix as well, children can be a little bit, but not all that helpful until the age of 18. So children don't automatically qualify for the full tax-free threshold of 18,200 uh, because the government knows this goes on. So what they do say is, look, for children under the age of 18, if they receive um, more than a very small amount of this kind of income, uh, then um, they're going to get hit with a penalty rate. If your child under the age of 18 has a job from employment, that's fine. Uh, they get access to the full tax-free threshold, same as an adult, uh, but they do have uh, tax rates. In fact, if they're distributed any more than $416 in a year, then they're going to um, be hit with a higher amount of tax. Uh, and the, the concept is that children who receive income from a family trust should have a tax rate of 45% across all the income that they receive. Um, and, uh, and, and the way that that works is if the children, if the child was to receive, say, $10,000, it would be 45% um, plus Medicare across that entire amount. Um, and because the first 416 is tax free, the next certain amount needs to be a high rate of tax in order to achieve a 45% average on the balance. So up to $416, there's no tax payable between $417,000 and $1,307. It's actually 66% tax mm -hmm. on that particular amount of income. But once you get to $1,307, then it works out to be an average of 45%. Uh, and then from there above, it's uh, it's also at a rate of 45%. Right. Uh, once your kids reach 18 uh, and you've got adult children, well, now you can take advantage of that uh, full tax-free threshold of uh, $18,200. Uh, and that's where trusts can, uh, can really have some power. Um, and, and that's a big reason why trusts are helpful. Louis, there's one other reason some people set up trusts. Is it worth touching on that as well? The uh, asset protection side? Absolutely, Brett. 
That's right. So asset protection is uh, is a big part of it as well. Uh, and anyone who has a, a business interest or any uh, any interest which creates an element of personal risk. So if someone has the risk of being sued because of their occupation, uh, which which applies to a lot of people in the medical space, um, because there's that element of personal liability for what they do professionally. Um, uh, or if someone's running a business and that business is uh, is li- uh, exposed to being sued, which is basically anyone in business. So that's yeah. why you find that most people who set up a business will have a trust structure to own that business, uh, which just means that there's a separation uh, between uh, their personal assets and the business assets. And for medical professionals, uh, it's a separation between uh, for for the other way around. So in one case, you're going to get the business which is sued. In the other case, you're going to get the the person who is personally sued. Uh, and a trust works to protect in both ways. Um, in, in one way, you've got your trust assets assets exposed to being sued and your personal assets are, protection, are protected. In the other case, you've got your personal assets which are exposed to being sued and you've got protection of the assets inside the trust. Mm. Uh, so yes, trusts are very helpful, and you will find um, uh, accountants will um, will almost immediately set up a family trust structure uh, when a person is starting a business or or has this kind of situation. Uh, what that also means is that a lot of people who own their own businesses uh, who have these trusts set up to start with um, will also get the benefits of being able to distribute their income sooner than would otherwise be the case. So people who own a business who and that business is starting to become nicely profitable, well, that business income is going to be able to be split between the multiple beneficiaries of uh, of that trust, which, again, in our average family situation would be partner one, partner two, uh, and their kids for a very small amount if they're under 18 and a much higher amount if they're over 18. Um, there's something about trusts which can be a drawback, though. So if we think of our average family and they're just starting to accumulate their wealth, something that trusts can't do is they can't distribute losses. So if that family's first investment is a piece of real estate, which is pretty typical for uh, for, for a family's first investment, and that real estate is negatively geared, again, pretty typical. Uh, if that's owned by the trust, well, then the the, the negative income or the, or the negative taxable income, I should say, um, it's going to be stuck within the trust. So it, it doesn't mean that you lose it completely. It means that you have to wait for the trust to become profitable before that, uh, that negative um, taxable income uh, actually starts to become beneficial. So for your average family, which is paid by employment, um, where the only things in the trust is investments, what we often do as financial planners is we wait for their wealth to get to a certain level and they start to really be accumulating uh, a lot of investment assets where it's going to be producing more income than that group of assets will have in uh, in. Uh, in, in negative gearing impacts. Whereas if someone's already got a family trust because they're a business owner, well, then they've actually already got 
a certain amount of positive income. And for some business owners, what we do is we actually start putting uh, the investments in the name of their trust where they've also got their business. There's obviously the, um, the, the issues of asset protection and you don't want to be putting investment assets uh, where they're exposed to, um, uh, to being lost because of, of liability or being sued. Um, but for some business owners, they've already got the trust with positive income. Um, therefore, we can put negatively geared investments inside that trust and we can start getting the benefits of that ne negative gearing within the trust from day one. And there's less income from the trust to then distribute between uh, the beneficiaries of the trust. So that's how trusts can be helpful. Louis, I, I really love the idea of the use of trusts, um, but they're not suitable for everybody. At, at what point in time do you start to consider a trust? What level of capital to commence a trust would you start to talk to a client about the, the benefits of the trust um, and, uh, and when that might be a, a, applicable? Or is there not a, a level of capital that you might start it off with, but maybe a level of expected contribution to the trust in a relatively short space of time? Uh, when is their um, cash flow and asset accumulation strategy going to change and going to reach that point where investment income is substantially greater than the investment losses? So that positive uh, taxable income situation. Uh, so one of the things to consider is, um, again, taking your average family as an example, their first investment asset is going to be a piece of negatively geared real estate. Any savings that that, that that household gets from their income, the savings is going to go towards reducing the debt on the family home. Whenever they purchase another investment asset, whether it's another piece of real estate or they start a share portfolio, they're going to be encouraged to use borrowed funds to do it because they're not going to use cash. If you've got cash sitting on the sidelines, you're going to keep reducing your home loan and then you're going to borrow investment debt to get more investments. Yeah. So what I tend to look for is actually how low is your home loan and in what period of time are you actually going to eliminate that home loan completely, which means now your surplus cash flow is going to go towards building assets without borrowings. Mm. And when a person starts to accumulate assets without borrowings, well, then that amount of positive ta uh, taxable income really starts to escalate. Yeah. So it's it's sort of trying to predict the future as to when are they going to have more of a tax problem from this positive taxable income from their investments. Uh, and if it's going to be like 10 years plus in the future, let's not set up the family trust now. But if we can see it's actually in much more of a short-term time frame, okay, well, let's consider setting up the family trust now and starting to accumulate your assets inside that trust. There might be one or two or three years where your tax losses are trapped inside that trust, but then it's only year three, four or five that you actually start to get the benefits and, and you can then use up those tax losses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the that's the timing side of things which I tend to look at. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, trusts. There's so much that you, that can be done with trusts, and the way that you structure them as well. Um, they're not vanilla. Uh, I've, I've been through an, a range of uh, structuring 
advice pieces with clients, particularly those clients that have got substantial businesses that uh, need to protect their business assets from their personal assets and also distribute income. Um, and uh, there's lots of conversations that need to be had working through the complexities of how you protect those assets, get the tax efficiency. Uh, it's not a simple area. You do need to um, work through the, the various trade-offs that, that are inevitably involved with any strategy that you're working through. Uh, but uh, if you get it right, it can be a, a very powerful and a highly effective structure for wealth creation and wealth protection. Mm, that's right. Uh, also worth flagging that there is also a sweet spot of, uh, of wealth accumulation and an overall situation where it would be beneficial to have a company within your trust. Yes. That's where we really get crazy. I'm not going to go into that because that's <laughs> much more detailed explanations. Now you've got to go into the tax regimes for companies versus trusts. Uh, and also keep in mind that the company is within the trust. Yeah, exactly. And Louis, most of our listeners would actually be exposed or, or part of a trust without actually probably realising it because from my understanding, all superannuation is a trust structure. You're exactly Correct. right, Brett. Yep, superannuation is just a trust. Uh, there's a trustee of that trust. If you're in a retail super fund, then uh, some external uh, entity is the trustee of your superannuation trust. Uh, you're the beneficiary of your superannuation trust. And because that trust is set up in line with Australia's superannuation legislation, uh, it gets this discounted tax rate um, of 15% uh, when you're accumulating money and 0% when you're in retirement phase. Love that. That's Perfect. awesome. I think that's enough from me today. If you're not bamboozled by that, well done. Yep. So, uh, yeah, let's throw to another quick break. And we'll be back. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion, or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation, and self-managed superannuation funds risk management, estate planning, and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. And hello listeners again, and hello Brett. Hey, Louis. Uh, well, do you guys remember last week we touched on how New South Wales were looking at overhauling their stamp duty and property tax system? Do indeed, yes. And we, I think I might have mentioned that um, some of the other financial service people I, I communicate with had flagged that the Victorian government were possibly going to do something similar at their budget. Well, the Victorian budget was handed down in between these episodes and they didn't actually flag a significant change in the same way that uh, New South Wales did, but they have actually put into place already a, uh, a change to stamp duty that will benefit property purchasers that are buying properties under a million dollars. Right. So, okay. okay. Tell us about that. 
basically what it is, is anyone that buys a, a property that's valued under a million dollars, if it's a brand new property, so just built or off the plan, they'll get a waiver of 50% on the stamp duty. And that can be significant. Most, uh, so stamp duty in, in Victoria is in excess of 5%. So if you're getting a 50% discount on a million dollars, that's going to save you the best part of $25,000 yeah. on your purchase. Uh, if it's an existing property, well, you still get something, but it's only the 25%. You don't get the full 50% discount if it's uh, an existing property that you're buying. Uh, and it applies across commercial, industrial, and regional properties around the state. So basically anyone buying a property under a million dollars will be able to benefit from that. Wow, that's, that's substantial. Is that, uh, Brett, is it a permanent reduction? Is it a temporary measure given the situation? That's a great question, Louie, I haven't been able to dig deep enough into it. So it, it was a measure that was flagged in last year's budget, uh, and they were expecting to bring it in in July 2023. Uh, but obviously with COVID and the, the need to try and stimulate the economy and give people a break, they've brought it forward. Uh, from what I can gather, though, it looks like it'll be permanent, and they'll probably just keep it at that million-dollar threshold. Yeah, and this is, and this is just on uh, brand-new properties, is it, Brett? No, no. So 50% discount is for brand new and 25% for existing. Right. Okay. Somewhat, uh, somewhat going back to, well, a little bit of the way back to the stamp duty uh, regime that was in place prior to 2014, I think it was, um, when, when uh, you used to get complete stamp duty exemptions or very substantial stamp duty exemptions on brand new uh, properties built off the plan. Yeah. So state and, and federal government have always looked at um, construction being a, a, you know, a big part of the economy and they want to keep incentivising, you know, new homes to be built and therefore people having the ability to buy new homes and making it attractive for them. Hence the reason the first homeowners grants are, are biased more towards brand new builds as well. It's obviously the result mm. of the positive effect that, you know, when you when somebody buys a brand new home, they're generally putting brand new furniture into it and brand new TVs and, yes. uh, you know, uh, it feeds through the economy. There's many, many industries that are touched by real estate. It's not just the builder, it's the manufacturers, it's the materials, it's the, it's the homewares. It's the conveyors. Yep. Yep. Real estate agents. Yep. There's so many, uh, so many parts of the economy that are affected by real estate, which is why real estate is a favourite of many governments to help stimulate uh, their economies where where there might be difficulties within the economic situation that they're facing. Yeah. Well, and by no coincidence, Joel, it's it's the leader in the uh, BRW rich list. Yes. Well, <laughs> you know, when you've got uh, government picking winners like they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I thought I'd, I'd tie that into to an article I, I saw a report from realestate.com.au that have uh, have come out with some analysis on the suburbs across the country that have had the, the largest increase in new listings. Uh, and they've used a time frame, which is interesting. So it's, it's, it really is comparing the, the bulk of Australia's COVID restriction time frame. So it's, it's comparing May to October in 2019 to May to October in 2020. Uh, and seeing which suburbs have, have had the greatest growth in, in new listings coming to market. Uh, and, and I think this ties in well for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, obviously, if, if there's an increase in listings that's significant, we would assume it's new stock. It's not just existing homeowners selling. Obviously, they're going to contribute part to it. 
but for a suburb to grow significantly, it's usually because new developments are going on, either house and land, apartments, townhouses, that kind of thing being brought to market, uh, which therefore you know ties in with these incentives because typically they're going to be under a million dollars. And also it means that behind that there's a developer, someone that's bringing this to market, which is more than likely some of these guys that are on the BRW rich list making billions of dollars. Uh, but uh, we're obviously being in Victoria, guys. I'm going to pose a question that the suburb that led the way in Victoria with the greatest change, so up 67% from last year, is potentially a suburb you may not have even heard of. Yeah, okay. Who has heard of Calcalo? Oh, no. Never heard of it. Never, Never heard. I had a feeling that'd be the case. Uh, when I saw it, I thought, oh, that's one most people will go, where the hell is Calcalo? So I have a, it, I'll have a punt, though. I don't know. Where, I've never heard of it, but I'm going to have a punt and say that it's probably somewhere down near a coastal area. No, incorrect. No. Louis, do you want to have a guess? Oh, jeez. Oh, near one of these um, uh, regional towns that's uh, becoming really gentrified, like, uh, like a Kyneton or a Castlemaine or something like that. A hell of a lot closer but incorrect as well. Uh, It's a northern suburb, probably a newly created northern suburb, uh, probably about 30 kilometres north of the CBD, so it's out past the airport even. Uh, So nearest suburb I can see on the map is Donnybrook, if you're familiar with Donnybrook. Um, And if you come a little bit closer, you're heading out past Craigieburn. Mm. Gotcha. Almost as far as Beveridge. So it's it's sort of like the borderline of of metropolitan and regional. It's probably where the you know the growth corridor is starting to reach. You ever been out to the Donnybrook Hotel? Mate, I haven't. You you sound like you've you've got experience there. <laughs> Aptly named. Let's just say that, mate. If you're looking looking to get yourself into a bit of trouble back in the old days, <laughs> good place to go to. <laughs> um, so. Well, but I guess that highlights the point that the reason these suburbs have a high volume of, of new listings and therefore the growth in new listings is because they're greenfield. So it's, it's it has to be because of development stock. It can't really be of, of people in the area all suddenly wanting to vacate and, and list, uh, even though that could be the case. I, I seriously doubt it. If we have a look at units in Victoria, a, a suburb not too far from you, Louis, has led the way, and I, I didn't realise that they were they were bringing so many new units to market. Altona North, is, oh wow, uh, yeah, is, yep. is leading the way there with a sixty five percent increase. And, and another interesting one. Um, so I can understand Altona; it's still reasonably close to the city. You know, you're not too far from the water, and, and you know, there's a fair bit of infrastructure around it. Um, the other one that was fourth on the list for units uh, within the Melbourne metropolitan area was actually Kilsyth, which mm-hmm. is probably about 30 kilometres east of the city, 30 to 40, I would imagine. Uh, and I would have thought that type of area would still be more prone to, to townhouses or houses than units, but it shows that uh, pretty much every location has a demand for units. There's obviously people that like to downsize or people looking to enter the market wanting a, a cheaper or a low-maintenance option. I think that downsizer market is 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 really becoming uh, more important, uh, or, or more more popular, I should say. Um, and and Kilsyth is is probably one of those areas where a developer can get um, relatively cheap land, um, and and build a, a value added product 
and um, and, and have enough money to uh, to fit it out nicely, but also have a really big floor space and, and make it quite appealing. Yep. Yeah, I agree, Louis. Well, I, and the developers would know this. I mean, these these things wouldn't be coming to market unless the developers saw there was a demand for it. Um, so obviously, that seems to be the way it's going. Uh, interestingly, though, none of the heavily populated CBD areas or, you know, the South Banks or uh, anywhere around like Richmond or or uh, Docklands has, has shown up as, as one of the ones with a whole lot of new listings. Uh, but Melbourne's stats pale by comparison to Sydney's. So the stats in Melbourne were all in the, the double digits, sort of up to 70%. Yeah. Well, for houses, a, a suburb in New South Wales called Austral has actually grown by 140%. So massively significant. Jeez. Uh, and for units, uh, the suburb of Ultimo, has grown by 170% in the last 12 months. Jeez. Uh, now, I would also throw out there that if we're looking to invest in property, these are probably suburbs we wouldn't look at. Um, you know, capital growth we've always relied on for, for the reason to invest in property, and that tends to come from shortage of supply and high demand. Uh, when there's this volume of new listings coming in, that typically means, uh, you know, you're not going to have a shortage of supply and, and limited ability for capital growth in the near term. Um, so these are suburbs that I would say there's just high demand for people wanting to come and live in for access to jobs or or potentially where they're, especially people getting on the market for the first time at low prices. Uh, and most of the time, they're, they're not the types of properties that grow in value the most compared to others. Mm. All right. Interesting. So, so Brett, it sounds like you're basically saying stay away. Yeah. Look, I, I would actually say that. I mean, obviously, there's there's going to be exceptions. There always is. Uh, yep. But on the whole, if, if a suburb's grown 170% in terms of the amount of listings in a year where overall real estate transactions are down, you have to look at the reason why. Uh, and I can only assume that the reason is new, new stock coming to market. And if there's a whole lot of new stock coming to market, well, that means there's significant supply and typically when supply is high and, and you know potentially demand can meet it but usually it doesn't in the near term yeah yeah okay so maybe not stay away but red flag red flag yeah yeah you I don't so. Brett, you don't you don't need uh i mean when you've got supply and demand if you've got a high amount of supply and a high amount of demand what essentially you end up with is stagnating prices that's right. Yeah. yeah. We we want to, to, if we were going to invest in property, we want to go into an area with limited supply, but real high demand is in people want to live there. And there's the reason that the prices grow is because they can't get access to it. There's just not enough. That's, that's what really drives significant property growth. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Very good, so, Brett. It's worth having a look at if any, I mean, look, if anyone is looking to invest uh, and, you know, they've been hit with a suburb they're not familiar with, Check and see if it's on this list. It could be a nice indicator as, uh, as whether they need to dig a bit deeper. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you for that, Brett. Uh, insightful as always. Thank um, you. And, uh, and, and things for our listeners to keep in mind. Uh, let's kick on. Uh, we're almost done for the day, but we do have one more final segment, which we all know. Yep. Very good. Uh, all right, fellas, who has something today? I'll kick it off, Louis. I've All got. Right, uh, how about a how about a ten person kidney swap? 
performed by Texas Hospital. <laughs> Whoa. Was it a this, relay? This, well, almost. Uh, it was a, a, a an odd set of circumstances where various people were offering to, don, uh, to do donate organs or kidneys to other people, but the matches weren't exactly perfect. So what ended up happening was that one person who was intending on donating to another person ended up donating to a, a completely different person where that person's donor was uh, donating to a, another person, then was diverted to another person. <laughs> and uh, this all happened together in a 10-way swap of uh, organs wow. in a Texas hospital, uh, resulting in the successful uh, transfer of those organs into five healthy uh, different patients that wow. uh, still survive today. Um, so uh, pretty, pretty incredible, uh, uh, pretty incredible outcome for doctors at the Houston Methodist Hospital, uh, where the uh, where the where these kidneys were were swapped. Wow, that sounds like uh, the medical version of torrenting, where everyone gets a little <laughs> bit of the piece. Yes, <laughs> including um. the virus. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I, I'm gonna give you a name that you've probably never heard and, and likely never will again, but the name of Mike Easy Nwali Nwogu is a nightclub owner from Nigeria. The reason uh, I mentioned his name is he's made quite a statement when going to a friend's wedding. Uh, the first part of his statement is that he, he rocked up in a, in a neon pink colorless suit, which made quite the statement. Wow. Uh, but the more significant impact and, and became the talk of the whole wedding uh, was that he brought along his six girlfriends that were all pregnant. Oh, wow. My goodness gracious me. Wow. Been a busy boy. You've been He's a busy boy. He's going to have boy. a hectic few years, I'd imagine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all right, fellas, what is the biggest prison breakout that you've ever heard of in terms Ooh. of numbers? Wow. Oh, I can't even think of one, Louis. No, no idea, mate. No idea. All right. Well, there's obviously famous individuals like uh, like John Dillinger, who escaped multiple yeah. times, uh, Ronnie Brink, Briggs, uh, the, uh, the, the guy who uh, robbed trains. Yeah. Um, there was uh, the the big one was the Great Escape from one of the concentration camps of the Second World War, where 600 people escaped. Um, but get this, 50,000 fish. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, trick question. 50,000 Tasmanian salmon have escaped from their farming pen because a oh, fire actually no. broke out on the uh, on the water-based um, uh, farming pen uh, and oh. fired, uh, put damage uh, to about a third of it, burned a hole and, and melted it, and, uh, and about 50,000 fish escaped. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'd, which, I'd be taking which, a rod down there anytime soon. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's a boon for the local uh, fishermen who are going to uh, pick up some some Tasmanian salmon pretty easily. Uh, yes. Although, uh, and and for people who are animal activists and thinking, good on you for the fish escaping, it's actually not very good news uh, because these fish uh, are apparently uh, raised on feeding on the the pellets that they feed them, uh, and they're not used to catching their own food to eat. So. They're not going to last very long, I'm afraid. Okay. I need to be fished ASAP then. That's right. 
So get your rods in the water. Maybe take a spearfish, uh, a, a spear. Um, what, do you, what do you call them? Yeah, spear fishing yeah. rod. Yeah. Yeah. Catch them while they're fresh. That's right. Yeah. Good yeah. eating. <laughs> well, thanks, gentlemen. It's been a lovely hour to spend with you guys, as always. Nice job, Louis. And well done, Louis. Thank you, listeners, for listening to our drivel for another hour. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it again next week thanks brett thanks joel thanks, thanks a lot bye-bye